uh, Ryan Ellsworth for our second session tonight. Uh, he's going to be sharing with us about postmodernism and authority, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, Ryan is Seth's more mature brother. It's debatable. So, um, Ryan, the floor is yours, and folks will be trickling in. I'm sure you can tell some humorous anecdotes and uh, get started at your own leisure. So, thank you very much. Yeah, I learned something tonight. When Presbyterians get together, they share drinks. When Baptists get together, they share food. When Baptists and Presbyterians get together, apparently they have snacks. So, <laughs> compromise and preserving the unity of the body there. Um, Before I get into it, if you've got a Bible, you can open to Romans 1. Um, those, uh, those, two, those displays in the back, those are two separate ministries that um, I'm a part of. Scattering Seed is a ministry that uh, started about 14 years ago, and uh, it was so old. Uh, probably 80% of it is out of print books written by just great Christians. Um, of yesteryear, we've got a bunch of stuff on the Scottish Covenants back. Presbyterians and then uh, Spurgeon and a bunch of other Baptists and just a bunch of good theological work. Um, what happened is just reading one of those books at an old bookstore, I thought, man, where are these kind of people? They don't write like this anymore. And uh, to be honest, I just don't have much of a stomach for modern Christian writing, even the great ones. Uh, you get you read the depth of these people's walk with Christ and it's just rich. So everything from that actually goes to further the gospel, all the funds from that goes to further the gospel among the unreached. So we don't get anything from it. it. That's not the purpose of it. It's to spread sound doctrine and for the gospel. There's another ministry back there you'll see a sign for called Durihana. And the guy that started that is a man named Pastor Chun. He's a South Korean pastor. And they call him the Schindler of Asia. And uh, Scattering Sea started with my wife and I coming off the mission field going, Lord, we don't have anything and we just want to be able to serve you. And here we've, there's just a lot of things that the Lord's been able to do through that and furthering the gospel among the unreached. Well, Durihana was our church just saying, Lord, we want to reach the unreached. We want to help the persecuted. And we just started supporting this ministry we found out about. And then uh, through a series of events, our church just kind of behind the scenes opened up the U.S. branch of the ministry. And so now we're involved. Uh, I'm involved on almost a daily basis um, with the ministry and just uh, rescuing North Koreans. Uh, he's one of the pioneers of the underground North Korean Underground Railroad. So my wife is back there. My oldest son's back there. They can tell you all about both of those. My oldest son is getting hooked on the good old books now. Did a family mission trip to South Korea this year and got to go on a, I got to go on a rescue of two North Koreans. Um, so it's just very interesting stuff that the Lord is doing. So if, if you just have a heart kind of to, for North Korea, spread the gospel there, if you like to read. Uh, that's what the, all that's about. So um, it all goes elsewhere. It's just a place that we get to serve and be a part of. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Father, I want to thank you for your love and your, your grace and your compassion, your mercy, Lord. Who's sufficient for these things, Lord? Uh, the depth of understanding your love, Lord, is something that we can't explain. It will take an eternity to even understand. So I pray you'd fill me with your spirit, Lord God, and you would give us wisdom and you'd give us clarity, Lord. Uh, we live in difficult times. As every Christian has, we face difficult ideas and situations, Lord, and we pray that you'd help us to understand them that we would be men who understand the times, women who understand the times, and can rightly give an answer for our faith with joy, with grace, and without fear too, Lord. I pray you'd help us to understand postmodernism and authority and what your word 
would speak to about it. And I pray that you do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I got uh, saved. I became a Christian at 22 years of age. I had just finished my first senior year of college. I was such a good student that I had multiple senior years. And um, it was right down the road at Eastern New Mexico University. And uh, so being a three-month-old Christian, I went back to class and um, started class, started the semester, became a Christian over the summer, and um, entered a 400-level rhetoric class. And the first four weeks of the class was, was a two-and-a-half-hour class. The first four weeks just, was just a debate as to whether such a thing as truth existed or not. And I found myself for the first two weeks silent listening to it, just kind of somewhat wide-eyed, but also, too, somewhat mystified because while there was some high-sounding words, you heard Seth with some of those 15-syllable jawbreakers. Um, they were throwing those out left and right as well. But they, um, there was also just a, a simplicity that seemed to be lacking. At one point, one young lady was arguing that tree out the window. I, I don't even know if that tree exists. I looked out the window at the tree, and I looked at her. I said, I can tell you a way you'll figure that out. Go run at it at full speed. <laughs> Didn't like that. Um, one point the argument of truth went on and I'm listening to this and so I finally said, okay, let me ask you something. Let's say that you and I have a debate as to whether absolute truth exists or not. And this was actually the debate team that was in the class and Eastern at that time had a very good debate team. I said, and let's say you defeat me on every point. I argue that there is such a thing as an absolute truth, and you argue there is no such thing as absolute truth. And I said, you defeat me on every point, and you win. Have you not just proven to me that it's an absolute truth, that there is no absolute truth, and you've therefore defeated your own argument if you win your own argument? And the whole class just stopped and looked at me. And then went right back to the debate and went right on talking. It was just like, whoosh, just right by. So there's, there's a simplicity that just seems to be absent. Um, but they are very complex arguments that they get into. My aim tonight is to talk to you about postmodernism and authority, and I hope give a little bit of what the scripture would point to about it, while also incorporating in what we're dealing with in our society. A difficult, tricky task. I've approached this about three different ways. I didn't have time for a fourth, so you're getting number three. You can read with me in Romans 1, verse, beginning verse 18, Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burning their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, 
being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Years ago, I was training up a man in our church to be a pastor. He had helped plant the church. We had served together previously. I was a pastor. I was his pastor. He was a deacon. And now he was in training to become an elder. He said he wanted to grow more doctrinally. So I said, okay, let's, I mean, let's talk about some specifics of some doctrines you'd like to grow, and then let's work on those. As we talked about some of these areas of study, he said, Ryan, what do you think are the biggest areas right now where Satan is attacking the church? What would you say to that? There's a lot of things you can give an answer to, right? Marriage, the roles of men and women, the truth itself, holiness, the absence of sound Bible teaching. But as I went through each one and kind of followed it to its end, looking at different areas that are under attack, each one went back to the same root. And that's the authority of the Word of God. And that's what I told him. Phil, there's a lot of areas where Satan's attacking but it all stems back to one thing that he's aiming at. The authority of God's word. And wasn't that the original attack? Did God really say? If he can undermine that, if he can undermine the authority of the word of God, our teaching on marriage, our teaching on the roles of men and women, have no clout. If he can undermine the authority of the word of God, churches will be led by personality, charisma, and the eloquence of men, instead of being led by the word. If you can undermine the authority of the word, then the church does not have a unified truth that it is accountable to, and instead everyone will simply do what is right in their own eyes. That's the attack. When everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, they become an authority unto themselves. So when you look at postmodernism and authority, and I'm going to break it down this way, this is the way I've settled on, this is not going to be an ex exposition of Romans 1, but we will pull out some truths and principles in it. Uh, what is the postmodern view of authority? You need to know that to understand where they're coming from. Where does their real authority come from? And in that, I'm not going to take so much as the historical approach as Seth has already done, but I want to try and uh, show you maybe a little bit of what's going on behind the scenes and the spiritual dynamics of it. And then finally, how does that play out in the society and in the church? And again, obviously, that cannot be extensive because of the breadth of the topic, but we'll touch on some things to hopefully give you some things to chew on and continue thinking through this. So what's the postmodern view of authority? In a very scriptural sense, postmodernism is nothing more than a philosophical system that seeks to justify man in his autonomy from God. Spiritually, that's what's happening. There's a whole lot of other language involved, but when you get to the root, Man wants to be independent of God and will always seek to find a way to justify that. That'll change as the church rebuts it. There'll be continual counters and it'll go back and forth. But man and his thinking is always going to follow it to its end. It's something important to remember. The outward man will always live out what the inward man believes. One of the things I try and teach my kids, even my wife, is before you rebut someone's argument, 
Ask yourself this question. What if it's true? As Christians, we can be too quick to want to... So what? You don't need to be afraid of the truth. The scripture says we can do nothing against the truth, but only for it. What if that is true? And if you follow it to its logical end, to its conclusions that come from the argument, that's going to show you really the cohesiveness of the argument. So because postmodernism rejects any idea of absolute truth, it rejects any concept of absolute or final authority. If there's no absolute moral law, then there can be no absolute moral law giver. That's where this ultimately goes. Once God's truth is rejected, then God's authority has been rejected. I don't know which of those comes first, the chicken or the egg. It may be rejecting God's authority, and that's why they don't want his truth, or they reject his truth, and therefore his authority. But they believe, as you heard, there's no such thing as an objective truth. And so, as I said, to claim to have or to hold an objective truth is arrogant in the postmodern mind. That's the culture we live in. So postmodernism, the viewpoint, the mindset believes that traditional authority is false and corrupt. Look at, look at the uh, bonds of tradition that have just been burst in the last 40 years in our country. That's the rise of postmodernism. Tradition carries with it a degree of authority. Now, most would even hold, and even in the church you hear this, there's, there's an anathema view of tradition. Yet the Apostle Paul taught the church in Thessalonica to keep the traditions they had delivered. Now, to be certain, there's man-made traditions that can creep up and creep into the church that need to be jettisoned when they're discovered. Jesus pointed that out with the Pharisees. They had followed and created man-made traditions. But Jesus never threw all tradition out. He didn't launch the baby with the bathwater, but that's postmodernism. And this is important because if God is anything, God is authority. And so this directly affects their view of God with the rejection of ultimate universal authority. If there's not an objective truth, then there's not an ultimate authority. Now follow this and watch how it's going to play out. If there is no ultimate authority, then there is no ultimate accountability. If there's no ultimate accountability, you don't give an account. There's no judgment. And that's why the concept of judgment is found extremely offensive and even evil to the postmodern mind. How do you know a church is struggling with postmodernism? They really struggle in ever bringing up the judgment of God. Paul reasoned with kings and talked about righteousness and the judgment to come. Jesus, you probably know this, spoke more, warned more of hell than he spoke more of heaven. Our Christians aren't to be a people that only preach judgment. But you can't read much of the Bible without escaping the clear judgment that is talked about in there. We have wrong views of judgment sometimes because we judge wrongly ourselves. God's judgment is never wrong, and the scripture says that God loves justice, that he's honored and glorified in judgment. So we preach the love of God, but we preach the full counsel of God. People need to know the entirety of who God is. And the gospel, as much as it is a display, the death of Christ is a display of the love of God, that's Romans 5 verse 8, 
Look at what else it's a display of. Romans 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now look at this. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The gospel doesn't just reveal the love of God, it reveals the righteousness of God as well. That's what Romans chapter 3, the last part of it, is all about. And that, Christian, understanding the revelation of the righteousness of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ is what brings security. Not just the love of God. That won't give you a strong security. It will help. But you must understand how the gospel has satisfied the righteous demands of God, and you will be free. This is important. Because if a church is only going to talk about love, they're floating into the postmodernism. Who doesn't want to hear about love? Is that offensive to anybody? God loves you. Postmodernism, well, self-righteous one at least, of course he does. He should, right? That's the mentality. Maybe among the religionists. But that doesn't offend anybody. It doesn't offend the postmodernists. Why? It's not a threat to their authority structure. So, when we talk about postmodernism and how they have a disdain and believe that traditional authority and ultimate authority, universal authority, use the word meta-narrative, right? I guess meta-authority. Um, those things, they, they have a disdain for that. Please understand what the postmodernist. They do not reject all authority. This is critical to understand. They reject all other authority than self. That's postmodernism. And it's important to understand. They hold tenaciously to their view of authority. And that is that they are the determiner of truth. They are the authority. They are the judge of what is right and what is wrong. They believe in authority. They just don't believe in our authority. They believe that they are the ultimate authority. So in postmodernism, self is the basis of authority and they will despise any authority except for their own. That's the source of it. That's what you see in Romans 1. God reveals the truth to mankind. What do they do? They don't want it. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What can be known of God is evident to them. They're without excuse, and they what? They reject it. And then they turn and they set up an authority for themselves. Professing to be wise, they become, became fools. Verse 22. Verse 21, they knew God, but they didn't glorify him as God. Their foolish hearts were darkened. You see what's happening here? God reveals his truth. They don't want it. And instead, what do they do? They set up themselves as the authority. That's the heart of it. That's where the view spiritually of authority is coming from. Uh, the, that's the, uh, the just the view of it. Now let's move into where the view of authority comes from. You've heard of a bit of postmodernism's progression in society from Seth, and that goes back a couple hundred years. Looking now at this, seeing the different angle of it, we see the progression spiritually, and this is important. God revealed his truth, it's rejected, suppressed, they don't want it. This doesn't mean that they even necessarily knew about Jesus Christ, but they knew enough to know that there is a God who is ultimately in authority over all things. There's an order to all things. That's rejected. Those who reject and suppress it, 
do not just believe themselves to be wise, but now I draw your attention to verse 22, professing to be wise. Why is that important? Because if they're professing it, they're confident in it, you know what we would call that? Evangelism. They're evangelizing their own wisdom. They're telling others about it. This doesn't just stay private. As the descend, descent from God is described, it doesn't ever keep to that person's own self. It's exported because it's a belief system. It continues all the way, verse 25, they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Now, what's the, there's a biblical word for that. What do we call that? Idolatry. It's exactly what it is. That's idolatry. A.W. Tozer wrote something very famous. He said this, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Now, we tend to hear the word idolatry, and what do we think of? Statues. That's not just what idolatry is. That's, that's a part of it. But understand the biblical concept of idolatry. Idolatry is when I abandon the true view of God. Because I am created by nature in the image of God, I am therefore by nature an interpreter of all things. And when I abandon the true view of God, which is found in the Word of God, then what I do is I create a concept of God in my mind that I believe to be God. And that concept of God that I have in my mind, that might ultimately be fashioned out as a statue, but it does not have to be for me to be an idolater. I don't need a statue to be guilty of idolatry at all. Israel in the wilderness, when they built the golden calf. They built a bull. Now, we would think of that and go, oh, man, I would they worship a cow. You don't understand. They didn't have tractors back then. Bulls and oxen were the strongest thing there was to pull something. You get one of those to gore you or hook you, you're done. Just like you get caught in a combine and it's all over. That was the combine of the ancient world. And so to them, that was a symbol of strength. They weren't trying to just worship a cow and go, oh, well, that God that's the big fire in the cloud, we don't believe in him anymore. No, what they were doing is that was their concept of God. He is this strong. He is this mighty. He possesses strength. The strength of a bull, the strength of an ox. Well, why is that wrong? 
because of how much it diminishes the strength of God. You think you can compare the strength of an ox to limitless power? To the power that can speak a universe, thousands of universes into existence? It demeans the very nature of God because it slanders his holiness. Holiness means separateness. It means otherness. Let me give you an, an example. Maybe this will be a little bit crude, but it'll work. Which one is more like God? Michael the archangel or the bacteria floating in your toilet? How many would say Michael? How many would say the bacteria? It's a trick question. Neither. God is so separate. He is so other. He is so mighty that neither one of those can come even close to being compared to what God is like. And so what happens is when man rejects the truth of God, which is an absolute truth, then he sets something up as God in its place. If you live in one part of the world, maybe your tribe does worship a little idol with a demon behind it that you're terrified of is going to kill you if you don't offer the right sacrifice. If you live in the Western world, there's the same kind of demonic power at work, which is more sophisticated. We don't do the statues. We set ourselves up as God and we call it postmodernism. I am the one who determines truth. I am the one who determines what is right and wrong. I am also, therefore, because the determiner of it, the judge of it. So who are you to judge me? In Romans 9, Paul uses basically the same language referring to God. Hey, who are you to judge God? You don't understand him. Well, it's postmodernism when they're in the seat of God. Who are you to judge me? It's the same thing. It's just placing themselves in the seat of God. Their thoughts become darkened, and they believe that they are the determiner of truth, professing themselves to be wise. Because they believe the determiner of truth, they believe that they are therefore the accurate interpreter of all reality. So what you see is a fallen nature at work. It's playing itself out, and this is what it looks like in our day and age, in our part of the world. But that's the heart of it. That's the heart of it. Essentially, man setting himself up to be God. Now, that's the uh, spiritual dynamic, the spiritual side of what's happening behind postmodernism. When man sets himself up as his own authority, he attempts to remove himself from being under God's authority. Now, God's going to have the last word in the last day, and every knee will bow, every tongue will give an account. So it's a deception. It's a deception. This is ultimately where everything's headed. What's the Antichrist going to do when he gets in the temple? Sit as God, so that he's worshipped as God. That's what he's going to do. This is where it's all headed towards. Okay, let's try and get a little bit more practical. How does the postmodern view of authority play out in the society and in the church? What I'd like to do in this section is just touch on different uh, major elements of society. I'm not going to be able to even come close to covering everything, even in one of the elements of society. But I just want to get your minds thinking so that you're able to recognize this around you. You're able to recognize this in the different areas of spheres of life that you're in, and you can see it, hopefully by some of these concepts and thoughts, getting your minds turning on these, the wheels going. Education. 
How does the postmodern view affect that? Well, the entirety of the education system would be turned, will be, is being turned under its head under the postmodern view. Education should deal with facts and realities, right? That's what it should be. Ultimately, education should be to teach people who God is and to glorify him as such. But even a secular education, if it was truly and purely secular, should just deal with facts and reality. One plus one equals two. Such and such happened in history. This is how you write a sentence. This is good art. Those are all absolutes, though, huh? That's the problem. So education, by its very nature, would be dealing with absolutes. Well, postmodernism doesn't believe in absolutes. So education, then, is pursued in a way to remove those absolutes. Education becomes something different. They're replaced with whatever the postmodern agenda of the moment is. History is not studied. History is rewritten from our paradigm. It's not studied. Well, when history is rewritten, can we learn from it? No. It's condemned to be wrong. It's, you read history, and most of the time it was wrong, but you study that, you learn from it. But it's rewritten. It's rewritten because it's reinterpreted by postmodern thinkers. Students are no longer taught how to read well, how to write well. What are they taught? How to express themselves. And as the education, as the system of education declines, you're going to see the society decline with it. About 60 years ago, the average 14-year-old had a vocabulary of over 50,000 words. Today, the average 14-year-old has a vocabulary average of less than 14,000 words. So what happens is things begin to degenerate. People can't think as well. They don't need to. They just express themselves, and that's how they feel. And who's to say that that's wrong? Education becomes a system that we just want to get children through. It doesn't matter whether they learn or need to go back and relearn it until they get it. They just need to get through because who are we to judge them? Everything about it changes. Art, who can judge art now? That's sort of the thing about art. You can't condemn it. I live in Santa Fe. That's where I minister. That's, I mean, you talk about art. We have a street that's world famous that's about a, a, it's a mile and a half long. There's like 300 art galleries on it. And I'm not even an artist, and I, I like some of the things on there. I think it's pretty interesting to look at. But at the same time, I walk into some of those places. Maybe this one time with a friend, I took him on a tour, and I came home, and I told my wife, we need to get our kids scribbling stuff down, because we'd be millionaires if we put stuff up. You look at it, and you're like, you're kidding me. That's art. Well, who are you to say that? They're expressing themselves, and that's what art's supposed to be. Instead of supposing to be something that declares the glory of God. It's just an expression of themselves. You can't judge it. You can't judge it. So, why can't you do this? Why is it just expressing yourself? And that's what education is becoming. Because that child, to the postmodernist mind, is the final authority on themselves. Who are you to judge them? And since authority is being despised, is despised by the postmodernists, is there any wonder that in the system of education right now, in our country at least, the parental authority is undermined, usurped, and fought against? That's postmodernism. 
give us your child, and don't you dare try and tell us what to do with them. You're seeing postmodernism in education. That's how this stuff practically plays out. Remember, the outward man will always live out what the inward man believes, whether you're a believer or not. So that's education, politically. 13 chapters later in Romans 13, Paul would write this in the first two verses. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Postmodernists do not have that one underlined in their Bible. See what he's saying? There's no authority except from God, the authorities that exist. They've been appointed by God. Okay, follow the thinking here. If postmodernism is a rejection of that authority, then the rejection of authority is a constant rejection of those whom God sets up. We've left education, we're talking about politics. There is no authority but from God. Whoever's in authority, God has put there. Even the bad ones, Christian. He called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Even the unbelieving ones, even the ones that persecute Christians the worst. Now, the Christian can understand that in light of the sovereignty of God and can learn to trust God through it. But the postmodernist despises any of that kind of authority, governmental authority. And so, look at what's happening here. God is setting up authority. Well, what will the postmodernist do despising it? Continually fight against it. Continually fight against it. Or resist. Right? That's the popular term. So the rejection of authority means postmodernism. The mind, the postmodern mind, is constantly at war with God, which Paul kind of said the same thing in Romans 8. Those who are in the flesh are at war. The flesh is enmity with God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's a different way to look at it. But because of the worldview of the postmodernist, what this means is that politically in our society, there's going to be constant political fighting and friction almost all the time, and there's one caveat to it. I'll explain the caveat in a second, but what this means is that politically, there will be a group of people, the postmodernist group, who will resist every and any authority, and here's the caveat, except for the one of their own choosing. Now follow the postmodernist thinking. One of their own choosing, why? They believe themselves to be God. If this is one of their choosing, they have appointed the authority. Romans 13, there's no authority except from God. The Christian trusts that this authority is from God. The postmodernist despises authority, except if it's one of their own choosing. Why? Because they, believing themselves, sitting in the seat of God, have set up that authority, and therefore it is acceptable to them. And so they won't resist that one. They won't resist that one. That's why you see postmodernists, and it's like, my goodness, it, what will you not protest? It's just, every, that's why. That's the mindset there. They, they cannot do otherwise, to be honest. And knowing that, you can have compassion on them. They cannot do otherwise. Because this is their worldview being lived out. They didn't set up that authority. How dare that authority say something to them that they don't like? Or even if they halfway agree with it. Just the fact that that person dared to say something. They don't want it because it's a challenge to their God, their authority. So they, in a sense, remain in the place of God, having appointed the authority. And that's why the ones they will not fight against or resist are the ones that they approve. 
the ones that they've helped to put there. So if it's not an authority of their own choosing, they will resist at all costs. If you've watched any of the news, and I, I, saw, I saw a hilarious uh, a meme or cartoon. Um, it was on the, the, the Oval Office speech the president gave. Was it last week, I guess, first Oval Office speech? And uh, if, you, if you Google that, all you see is just fact check, fact check, fact check, fact check. And this had a picture with the president, and it had a statement, and it said, good evening. And then there's a little caption that fact check, false. <laughs> Just that sort of an attitude, you know what I mean? Like, whatever it is, I'm going to resist it. Good evening, America. False. <laughs> why? That's not an authority of my choosing. That, that's postmodernism being lived out. That's why you see this stuff. Now, understand the Romans 6, bound in sin. They can't do otherwise. They're being faithful to their creed. They're being faithful to live out what they really believe on the inside. And that is that nobody else has authority over them. So if they didn't put that authority there, how dare they? They're going to protest. They're going to resist at all costs. That's politics. Economics. Economics. Economics has rightly been called the study of human behavior. I want to give you a little bit of history to set up the understanding of how you're going to see part of it in economics. Uh, England, the stuff mentioned um, Isaac Newton, I, I believe he was the first president or governor of the Bank of England um, and him and Adam Smith, a couple of good economists, especially for their time, um, set up the Bank of England, set up some great monetary policy uh, for their time, especially. It was pegged to something called the gold standard. The gold standard, in a nutshell, means that the country, there's a ratio of gold to whatever the currency of the country is. Let's use dollars for ours. There's a ratio of gold to dollars. When there is that ratio, that ratio has to be maintained, and the country just can't print money. Well, that's what was set up in England in the 1700s. That's where most of the early colonists came from. England eventually left the gold standard, but the U.S. was on it. The U.S. was, well, the U.S. had been on it from the Constitution. But in uh, 1944, we had been on this gold standard, so our currency was tied to gold, which, which you don't have these radical currency dips and everything like that. What, what that means is that the value of money, essentially, okay? Uh, if you were to take a silver quarter from 1960, when they were made out of silver, 90% silver, uh, back in 1960 or 65, that could buy you a gallon of gas, that one quarter. Today, that silver quarter could still buy you a gallon of gas because of the silver that's in it. But now, a gallon of gas is $2, so the dollar is not worth as much. So that's what the gold standard tends to do. Is it has to do, it deals with the value of money. There was something in 1944 created, it was called the Bretton Woods Agreement, that kept the United States on the gold standard. England went off of it, which meant that the dollar was pegged to the gold standard. And what happened is the dollar became the world currency. Something like 75% of all $100 bills held or are in existence or actually held outside the United States. So the, it's the reserve currency for the world. So the other currencies were pegged to the dollar. That made the dollar reserve currency. That works so long as the dollar is healthy and stays on the gold standard. It's not a world currency, but it ties all the other currencies to one currency. Okay, that, that agreement also is what created the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. So this worked. 
for a time because the dollar was still pegged to gold. Now, gold was called a hard currency. For the history of the world, money has always been gold or silver. China, about 900 years ago, was the first ever to experiment with paper money. But gold and silver have always been what money is. That's always what money's been. Ever since bartering stopped and that was introduced, that was money. And here's what's important to understand as to why. Because gold and silver had, and still have, inherent value. There was a time when you could take your $20 bill, and on that $20 bill, it would have said you could turn it in to your bank, and they would give you the equal amount in gold or silver. And you literally could do that. 80 years ago, you could go, and you could go to the bank and say, I'd like this in silver. And they had it. And they do it. Try going into a bank this week and, and tell that to the teller. Please don't do that. Sure. <laughs> That's right, Joseph looks at it. They don't know what you're talking about. So that statement on uh, that statement on our money disappeared uh, after Nixon took us off the gold standard in 70, 72 or 73. Uh, that statement disappeared. And no longer um, can you find it on the money that this is redeemable for gold or silver. So what happened? Well, the full faith and credit of the United States government is now what backs that paper. That credit was downgraded by Standard & Poor's in 2011. Here's what's important to understand. When you lose hard currency, you lose inherent value. Inherent value is an absolute. And then you just have paper. Backed by faith. It's taken more of it, <laughs> more of the faith, to believe in the currency. But you see how you lose the absolute. There is no hard currency. You may not know this, but our country had a brief experiment with this. During the, uh, it was right at the time of the Revolutionary War, they printed money and they called it the Continentals, and it was not pegged, it was not tied to gold. And it was so worthless, they went through such inflation and stuff like that, it was so worthless that all the way into the early 1900s, the statement, oh, that's not worth a Continental, could still be heard. Because we learned such a lesson. In fact, we learned such a lesson that the framers of our country wrote this in the United States Constitution. Article 1, Section 10. States are not permitted to, quote, coin money, emit bills of credit, or make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. Do you know why that was put in the United States Constitution? Because our country, our founders went through it. And they realized what happens when we don't have a hard currency. A hard is an absolute. Well, what happens when you don't have the hard currency? You get Keynesian economics, which means countries have printing presses and they can make as much money as they want and they can control things that way. And things can go up and things can go down. But it's in whose control? It's not an absolute. It's outside the government anymore. It's controlled by them. You lose the absolutes in the monetary system. You realize that right now we're, we live in the first time in the history of the world that nobody's had a hard currency? It's the first time in world history. It's an interesting side note, but there's only been one nation state in the last 15 years that has said they're going to return to a gold standard. Any guesses at who that is? ISIS. The Islamic State. 
So your money's not absolute anymore. And the value and the price of gold and silver, that can change too. It's a supply and demand, but there's something hard there. There's much more of an absolute. What our system creates in monetary terms is a system in which the value of money is no longer inherent. Instead, the government has its hands on a very sophisticated copy machine, and they can print the money at will. The result is that the value of money becomes relative to what's in the government's hands and what they want. It's not tied to an absolute. Gold represented an absolute. The existence of the gold standard prevented the government from printing money at will. Have you heard anybody cry out about this? That's in the United States Constitution. Why do you not hear any outcry about this? There's a couple of people saying something, but you don't hear outcry. Why? Because the postmodern mind is content with it. They don't mind the removal of absolutes. They don't mind things being relative. It fits the society. It's an example in the economic realm. Socially, uh, that could be an unending series of lectures in and of itself. I'm just going to give you an example. I'm going to give you an easy example for the sake of illustration, but I want you to see how this denial of authority and setting self up as authority uh, is seen socially in our culture. And I think the easiest example is transgen transgenderism. We've, um, I'm in Santa Fe. We are the homosexual capital of North America, not just the United States. More per capita than San Francisco. San Francisco looks prude compared to Santa Fe. Both in terms of ideology, it's just everywhere. And it's militant. Uh, we have had transgenders come into our church. We've had them come for a while. I'll take them out, take them out for coffee, take them out to eat with them, minister to them, share Christ with them. You gotta have pity on these people. They're, they're a mess. They've got all kinds of issues and all kinds of struggles. It doesn't justify what they're doing, but you can have compassion on them, and a Christian should. But we see this everywhere. Let's step back and look at what transgenderism essentially is saying. I am the authority who determines what I am. That's what it is. That's what you're seeing socially. But there's an addendum to it, and you better honor that. I'm the authority. Today, I'm identifying as, you name it. And you better honor that. Why? Postmodern view of authority. It's not that they deny all authority. They deny every authority but self. And so if self has declared this is a man, or this is a woman, or whatever, for you to say otherwise is defiance of that authority that has been set up as God. That's why there's the aggressiveness with it. We're going to talk a lot about this tomorrow night when we look at postmodernism and morality. But that's what it is. Now, this is where it's logically going to go to, and this is especially where Satan's going to take it. What was the, the pinnacle of God's creation? Day six, Adam and Eve, right? It was mankind. Marriage, that was instituted before the fall. No sin. It was good. It was perfect. Adam created 
perfect. Eve created perfect. Good. All of that. Man, woman, Genesis 1, in the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them. If anything is a prerogative that belongs to God, it is the prerogative to create and declare. This is a man. And this is what a man is for. You heard Seth talk about the meaninglessness. It's kind of woven all throughout what he was saying. When you deny ultimate authority, meaninglessness is going to be pervasive in your life. But when you go to God and you understand, oh, you created me as this, this is what I'm for. True meaning that brings glory to God is ultimately restored. But that's where you see it as an example socially. I determine what I am. Socially, it plays in a whole lot of ways. People's work ethic. This older generation, I don't know if one person would raise their hand who's over 50 if you think this younger generation is a harder worker than the one you grew up in. Why? That's postmodernism work. I don't want to do this. I'm tired of this job. Faithfulness, loyalty, those kinds of things. Those are not virtues. Why? Because they're subject to self being an authority over all things. And if getting calluses on my hand is starting to hurt, and I would rather not have the pain, and I see that in the moment as a greater virtue than the faithfulness, then setting myself up as a God, I will choose to leave because I have just determined that that's a greater virtue than faithfulness, and that's how it plays out in society. You see it everywhere. So, socially, it's all over the place. At the end of it all, postmodernism will always cause a society to descend into chaos. And if you follow the system, the way of view, chaos is the only possibility for a time. It will come out of it. But for a time, chaos is the only possible end to postmodernism. Why? Because everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. I was sharing the gospel with a postmodernist years ago. I do not recommend that you necessarily do this. Say what I said, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And I wasn't getting anywhere, and I just felt like, man, I just... I got to crack something. I need to get through to this guy. Because it was, uh, well, if you feel, well, that's right for you. And if you feel that that's right for you, and, you know, he just totally believed that. And so I said, okay, so if I understand you right, then I could just take out a gun and shoot you right now if I had one, right, and kill you. No? I said, yeah, I could. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes, there is. That would be right. I said, uh-uh-uh. Not if it's right for me. I don't know that he ever came to Christ, but there was a little bit of a jolt there when he saw the final end to his own thinking. But that's where it goes. So, in other words, if all society, if every individual is running around, well, this is right for me, but not for you, and this is right for me, there's going to be chaos. Because eventually that's going to conflict, and that's going to hit each other. Because everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. There also will be very little accountability in a society that is leaning heavily postmodern. Why? Because authority has been cast off, and when authority is cast off, accountability goes with it. I'm my own accountability. I'm the only one who can say whether I'm right or wrong. You don't have the authority to say that, so what's going to happen? Those in authority who will seek to bring accountability will do so at the risk of their lives, their families, or their careers. And we witness that everywhere, don't we? More and more good people 
are less and less inclined to get involved in the public arena. Why? Because all they need to do is say something that someone else disagrees with who has set themselves up as a god, and there will be a vitriol like you've never seen to go after that person. That's what it looks like socially. And I said for a time, to finish this on accountability, to bring accountability basically is to say uh, in this sense that something's not okay to do. And that's going to play in when Seth teaches on law. That's what, that's what is going to happen when you try and bring accountability in a postmodern world. You're saying something's not acceptable, it's not okay, and you've just challenged the lawgiver, which is the individual. You've challenged them. And so that's why there'll be a response. Now, it'll be for a time until postmodernism pervades the entire society, at least where it has a majority rule. Seth so mentioned we have a postmodern church in our city. Uh, the leaders of it are guides, pastors, um, and they're big on narrative and, and talking. And you read the bio, and I mean, I don't know, you think as a, a reading a biography of a pastor, you know, where did he study? <laughs> That's kind of important, right? Um, you know, what, on and on and on. Well, the things he likes to do, likes to have discussions with people, especially of different beliefs and persuasions, and just trying to really show, you know, that, that uh, hey, like, whatever's okay, whatever's cool with me. And this, this talk is big on locality and communal. Postmoderns are very big on communal living. Well, when the local group, the communal group that Seth was talking about that shares this same kind of thinking gets big enough within the society, then that group that shares the same kind of thinking in a democratic society where majority rules can control the outcomes of the society. So there will be chaos until that group sits in power. And then then you better hold on to Jesus Christ tightly if you want to speak up against that. Because now they have official power. And it will be militant. Because there is no tolerance ever of challenging the postmodernist authority which is self. They will preach tolerance on everything except for that. They will never tolerate that. That's postmodernism. Now, it's consistent. Is God mocked? No. Does God tolerate unending challenges to his authority? No. He's patient. He's long-suffering, something the postmodernist is not. But God is not mocked, and God doesn't challenge it either. So you see what they're acting like. That's where they put themselves. Religiously, try and be quick. Got a lot to say, so I might just talk really fast and then have you play it back slowly at home. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, religiously. So there's a disdain for authority. Where do you see that religiously? Uh, nobody has a patent on God. You ever heard that kind of stuff? Uh, who are you to say? Who are you to judge? Uh, all religions are equally valid except for those that make exclusive truth claims. That's why some postmodernists are extremely drawn towards Eastern religion. Why? Those religions tend not to make exclusive truth claims. Hinduism has about like 30,000 gods. They welcome Jesus. Hindus welcome Jesus. It's when you tell them they need to worship only Jesus that they get upset. They don't mind Jesus being one of the 30,000. They mind Jesus being one. And you need to even throw out the 30,000. So they're attracted to these Eastern religions. That's part of the reason why um, they lack the exclusive truth claims. We see it outside the church pretty easily, but what I fear is that we don't see it inside the church. And I want to try and talk about that. 
First, it's seen how the church views her pastors. This is a plague in our city, and I speak frequently about it from my own pulpit. I don't need the church. I have Jesus. Jesus is my pastor. It's me and Jesus. Now, what many think is just a blithe spirituality is nothing more than postmodernism hiding under a Christian robe. I have literally told people with that attitude at our church, that might be the case, and I'm glad you have Jesus, but whether you like it or not, Jesus Christ has commanded that you are under the authority of a fallible, sinful man who's a pastor. What have I just done? I knocked a God off his pedestal. So the postmodernist would feel very comfortable with subjective. I feel like God is telling me approach to Christianity. And there's branches of Christendom, but that's very heavy. Light on the word, heavy on what I feel like God is telling me. I'll give you an example. The most popular devotion on the market today is not an explanation of the word of God. It's not Spurgeon's morning and evening. It's simply short writings on what the author heard God tell her. Not from the Bible. There was no open Bible there. It was God told me this and God told me that and God told me that. What's frightening is that she claims God's, what she claims that God has said. If you read the revised versions that have come out, the subsequent editions, they've been changed. What does that say about what God said? In other words, in the first edition, he's, he told me this. Be happy, be at peace. Subsequent editions, it's different. She went back and changed what God apparently said the first time. In apologetics, we mock the cults for doing that. And yet this is mainstream Christianity. Most popular devotional on the market. This uh, attitude, we've dealt with it. I say we deal with it a lot. We do. It's, it's prevalent in our city. Um, I'll give an example where I, where I saw this sort of, uh, I'm my own individual. I'm autonomous. I have no authority, no accountability. Uh, a couple have come to our church. Me, couple, really just fitting right in, getting to know the people, getting to love the people, people loving them, join the church. Um, you know, as pastors, we saw some things that we need to come alongside. But that's everybody. You know, none of us has arrived yet. We're not who we were, but we're not yet who we need to be. Um, so, saw that. Uh, she had joined a class where I'm training people in, in the ministry of the word. Um, is for missionaries, pastors, lay people who want to start Bible studies, things like that. It's a two-year class we've set up. And any in tears every week just to how thankful she was, everything like that. But again, still saw the issues. Um, her husband was out of town on a hunting trip. Uh, she wasn't able to come to our church, so she went to a different church on Sunday. And that one Sunday she's there, they're advertising some women's discipleship thing. And so she calls one of our elders and says, the Spirit, the Spirit told her to leave. What? I mean, literally the week before she was in tears on a Thursday night about how God's ministering. So I called her and I just asked some questions. Hey, can you, so, so tell me this, tell me this, just ask him questions. And it was very, you know, what the Spirit told me, the Spirit told me, the Spirit told me, the Spirit told me. I do believe the Spirit leads. I do believe he guides. I believe that with all my heart to depend on it. But as I listened to her and asked her questions, like, did you seek counsel from anybody? Did you go to your pastors and tell them that you were struggling? And on and on and on, all these answers were no. So I'm asking for things that the Bible says are how God leads. And all her answers to those were no. So I finally told her, look, you're a grown woman. 
You're free to make your own decisions about where you want to go to church. But don't drag God's name into this. He wasn't the one that told you that. Because the way he leads is never contrary to his word. You see, this was an absolute. Her feeling was subjective. And as Christians, that's hard. Because how do you want to challenge somebody when they say God told them or God showed them? This is how. But do you see the potential for divisiveness in the church? God showed me this. If we don't keep this elevated, we elevate man and man's opinion above it. And that's how this gets into the church. So, it's everywhere. Postmodern church is going to set up whoever she wants to as a pastor. Paul said to Timothy, the time will come, his last letter, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That's seen everywhere. Statements in Scripture that are clearly regarding the requirements of a pastor are rarely even given a cursory reading anymore, much less an attempt to teach each other the church to diligently follow it. Why? Well, if we're the authority, it doesn't matter. I like him or her. Make him a pastor. That's what happens when this stuff gets into the church. And so the head, who is Jesus Christ, has the body doing things what? However it wants. And not according to this, because we are doing what we believe to be right in our own eyes. That's how this stuff plays out. Israel went through this. You can read the book of Judges. I was going to talk about that, but I'm going to have to skip it. Judges 17 especially. There's a situation there where it happens. One of the most telltale signs of a postmodern church is not necessarily what they say about Jesus. They're okay with Jesus. As long as you avoid that stuff about him being Lord of all, about God commanding all men everywhere to repent because of a day that he's appointed, whereby he's going to judge the world of a man, Jesus Christ, has given proof of this to all by raising him from the dead. You avoid those scriptures, and they're fine with Jesus. They don't mind Jesus at all. They're happy with the Jesus that, that you present, the postmodern Jesus. They're happy with that. So they're okay with that. They'll talk about Jesus. But here's how you recognize the presence of a post, or the existence of the postmodern church is by the role and the presence of the Word of God the Bible in the church. That will tell you if that church has stumbled into postmodernism, knowingly or unknowingly, that'll tell you. They may sing, they may play amazing music, they may be nice, they may be polite, they may be very helpful, they may be incredibly considerate, and have a host of programs to help hurting people. They may have all of that. But do they make authoritative, authoritative exclusive Truth claims in the middle of their service on Sunday morning. Is the focus, teaching, and instruction from God's word that is taught as coming from God. About 12 years ago, a friend of my parents, their church needed a pastor. And so my mom mentioned me to this friend. I wasn't looking for a job. And I said, well, I go to the church, check it out. The guy that was teaching um, that day didn't even really talk about the Bible, much out of the Bible or anything regarding the Bible. You felt good about yourself, but there wasn't a lot of anything in the Bible. 
The friend that was interested in me applying took me up. I met with him, and he told me this. I don't remember the exact words, but it was along these lines. Well, as a church, we don't, we don't really teach the Bible because we really want to bring people to Jesus. But the Bible talks about Jesus. <laughs> Try to not make any faces, okay? And, uh, you know, we, well, then what do, you, what do you guys do? Well, we have groups in the, in the week, and that's where we meet in our houses, and that's where we talk about the Bible. And that's where we're really trying to build up Christians. But on Sunday, so, you know, it's not really Bible teaching. Oh, okay. Didn't, you know, didn't give his face or anything like that. Just talked to him. That was it. Did not ever fill out an application. Why? The calling, the primary calling of a shepherd is to teach the word of God. That is how the flock is built up. And so it was clear, if I get in a situation like that, I'm just going to make everybody mad. I think it kicked me out pretty quick. So I'll save both of us some headaches and heartaches and not go that route because they don't want somebody who's going to step in there and says, say, thus saith the Lord. Now, take that language of the prophets and compare that with the postmodern church. Thus saith the Lord. To the Thessalonian church, Paul told them, do not despise prophecies. Doesn't that seem odd to you? I mean, everybody loves a good prophecy conference, right? That's all you like to go to. There's a thought, oh, this guy thinks, oh, you think he's the Antichrist? He thinks it's going to go this way? He thinks that God and made on and on and on. And we love going around talking about that. Why would anybody know like prophecy, Paul? Because prophecy isn't just future. Prophecy is to foretell, to tell the future, but it also means to tell forth, and that is, thus saith the Lord. And that means when we get in the Word of God together, and God says, this is what I say, this is what I mean, follow it, trust me, believe me, and turn away from your sin. Well, no, that's a little bit different. That's not as fun to hear. The God and Magog stuff certainly is not near as convicting as that. So now it makes sense why Paul would say don't despise prophecy. Because prophecy, a part of it, is thus saith the Lord. It comes with powerful, clear, direct appeal to authority that is from God. And therefore, you're called to take heed. That's the church. Do you hear that prophetic voice anymore? Not as much, huh? We talk and we pray a lot about revival. I have to be honest, I'm not in the Bible Belt. I know I'm only like three and a half hours away, but I think spiritually I'm about as far away from the Bible Belt as you can get. You guys are right just inside of it. You talk about revival a whole lot more than we do. You want to know what chapter of the Bible speaks of revival? more than I think the entire Bible put together? Psalm 119. The psalm about the word of God. Every verse in the psalm mentions the word. It's no accident revival is found there. But there's an authority that's got to get involved. The greatest threat, and it is a real threat, the postmodernism is coming against as a frontal assault to undermine the authority of the Word of God. That's the greatest threat 
that we face. And it's everywhere. It's infiltrated the church. Christians speak similar language, not that we have found the truth, or 1 Corinthians 2, that God has revealed the truth, but what does it mean to me as the approach to Bible study? What does it mean to me? Or, well, I take this to mean, or what God is telling me, God speaks personally, but the meaning of the text, it means what it means. It's how does it apply to me? And that's a very different question. This is what it means, and it means that for all of us. Now, how does it apply to me? How does it apply to you? It might apply very different to a mother than it would to a student, but it means what it means. And that's what you see all over in the church is what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? What does it mean to me? It's the postmodern thinking. This is why we need to be in the Word and have our minds renewed by the Word. When I view Scripture in that way, interpretation doesn't center around the text, but instead it centers around the individual. Instead of there being an objective meaning that lies in the intent of the speaker, God himself, self determines the meaning. What does it mean to me? And when I view Scripture like that, I set myself above the Word, and I sit in judgment of the Word. Instead of allowing the Word to sit in judgment of me, instead of allowing the Word to examine me, correct me, show me where I need to grow, change, rejoice, be thankful. But when we lose, we leave the Word, we lose the objective understanding of who God is. That's Romans 1. God initiated and revealed His truth. What did they do? They left it. And leaving that, they lost all objective understanding of who God is and fell headlong into idolatry, which ultimately ended up in what? The worship and glorification of self. It's exactly what happened in the book of Judges. It's also exactly what happened in heaven. I'm going to close with Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For he has said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Throne is a place of authority. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. You see, the fall of Satan is a record of him wanting to break away from God's authority and set himself up as God. Postmodernism began in heaven. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're seeing. That's what we face. It's what we face. It's not what we face forever, and it's not what we look forward to. Because the Bible teaches that we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Nothing there will enter. No one there will sin. Nothing will enter that can cause a sin. So this is not a lot for other Christians. This is just a battlefield for now. And that's important to remember. Lest you become weary. Lest you become discouraged. I want to conclude with these statements. Authority is the foundation of morality. It's the first thing I'm going to talk with you about tomorrow and this stuff is going to wrap up with law. 
Morality is the foundation of law. When a false rule of authority is held, it will always lead to an unbiblical set of morals which will pave the way for unjust and immoral laws. When people set themselves up as gods, they are then in the seat to call good evil and to call evil good and to begin to decree unrighteous decrees. What the inward man believes, the outward man will always live out. But uh, we'll pray, and then uh, Seth can uh, come back up. Joseph can come up, back up, and we can answer questions if you guys have any. Father, we thank you for your love, Lord. We thank you. This is our battleground, Lord. It's not our future. We pray you make us strong, give us grace to understand, and to have compassion on these people, Lord God, and give us wisdom, Lord, in our witness. We pray that you would do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Particular specific questions from the audience for Ryan or Seth on what was presented tonight. Are you guys are easy. They are easy. So I'll throw one out. I'll throw one out. Um, let me think how to word this without being leading of witnesses, so to speak. Um, how do I, as an individual Christian, take this about the authority of the Word of God and begin to apply it? What's the next step when I walk out the doors tonight? <laughs> um, the first step is the authority of the Word of God leads you to the sufficiency of the Word of God. It's not enough to talk about authority, inerrancy, and all those things. Because this is from God, you can trust it. And you should. And you've got to be able to to live this life as a Christian. That's where it starts. It doesn't mean that you go storm the doors of the world. It means that you trust it because this comes from God. And what he says is true. Every promise is real. You may not see it yet, but you just wait, it'll come. And so you begin to live your life based upon that. As you understand that the authority of it is from God, you understand what it says about salvation. And that gets into how do I witness in a postmodern culture? Salvation is a work of God. God has to open the eyes. It's supernatural. You can tell them all the truth they need, and it'll bounce off their forehead until the, until the Spirit of God works faith in their heart and their new creation. That takes a burden off you, but yet it places a responsibility on you. Takes a burden off because salvation is of God. Places a burden on you becomes faith, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, you have to trust the authority because if you don't, you will not ever have the courage to speak. Postmodern evangelism sounds like this. Preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. It's a half-truth. And it comes from a 13th century Catholic monk. We are to always live and have a faithful testimony to Christ. But the Bible is crystal clear. We must speak. Well, I understand this comes from God's authority. Speaking is not nearly as fearful because this is from God. So I can go out and speak. I understand the responsibility I've given to share the word of God. The other way that I think this will help is all those areas of society that I touched on. I just tried to touch on some things to get your wheels turned as to, oh, goodness, I didn't even think of that, that this could be... And so as you see those areas, every one of you works in an area where this is being touched. You work in a bank, right? 
there's ways that you can bring up things and you can talk about dialogue and discussion that can get people's thoughts turning. It's very rare that you go up to someone and say, did you know that Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for your sins? God punished him, poured his wrath out on him, and if you believe, you'll be saved. It's rare that somebody hears that and goes, praise God, I've been waiting for someone to tell me that. <laughs> that doesn't. There's a wrestling that the Spirit of God does with the unbeliever. Our role is to just scatter the seed. And sometimes it's things that you may never even suspect. So you're at the bank and you're talking about things in your industry. And well, this is where it comes from. Do you know the Constitution actually said it? Really? Never even seen gold. You just get wheels turning. You get people thinking. Then maybe you give them a book. But you just grow where you're at. But growing where you're at begins with trusting the sufficiency of this book because it's the authority of God's Word. I think that's a part of how I would answer it. I don't know. Peck would probably add to it. Well, <clears throat> partly, yeah. But uh, I, I was talking to my brother before the conference, and I was just talking to him about the struggle on, on what approach to take for this. And the first one for me was kind of determined because it's just a historical overview of what postmodernism <laughs> he is. He had a hard job. <laughs> yeah, but... But on the next one for law, it's, you know, is it a, do I talk about it as a sermon? I was talking to Bo about this yesterday too, or is it more of a, a lecture? You know, what do I do? Um, but my motivation, and this is kind of the application that you're talking about, is I, I really want the audience to see and, and be able to recognize in whatever context you're in to recognize postmodernism. Um, because it is, like Ryan just said, in a bank, at a school, in the military, in the pastorates. I mean, we have every one of those people in small business owners. It's in everything. So when you're able to recognize these tenets of postmodern thought and then undergirded is a biblical understanding of what Scripture teaches about God, about reality, about truth, about all these things, how you approach it really will just, I think, open up in those moments. It presents itself. God will sovereignly present the situation for you, and you just walk through the door. If you're a student, you hear something like this, not sure what you're going to major in, maybe you need to be a lawyer. Hmm. So you can be a voice in the realm of law. Maybe you need to be a judge. If you're a businessman, things are going well, you're just successful, laying low, maybe you don't need to lay so low. Join the Chamber of Commerce. That's a huge postmodern organization, by the way. Big time thinking there. Get in there. Be a voice. Use your place wherever it is that God has you. He'll show you. We tend to, we tend to pray and want the end. Lord, what do you want me to do? You just walk faithfully and God opens the door. And we tend to wait and wait and wait until we see it open. That's usually not how God's will works. It's sort of like those, like those doors at Walmart. You have to right? Imagine standing, yes, you got to walk. Standing, imagine standing in the parking lot 50 feet away. God, I pray you'd open the door. I need to shop today. Oh, God, I believe that you want me. Ah, oh, it's not opening. Call your wife. I'm just scared. God's not answering my prayer. I just need to get in there. No, what do you need to do? You pray and you walk. And what happens? Some big, all seeing eye picks you up. And right when you're where you need to be, it opens the door for you and you walk through it. That's how God's will is. You pray. Where does he have you? Walk. Go for it. And he'll open the door right when it needs to be open. 
And I would add to that, read your Bible every day. Hmm. It's really simple. It's really basic. It's really fundamental. Um, I used to work at the Christian bookstore in town. I'd have people come in all the time. Just came to be saved. I believe in Jesus. I'm real excited about going to my church. I want this book or this music or this movie or whatever that's going to revolutionize my life. And I'm like, this is a Bible. You open it every day. You read the words. And don't read the part at the bottom that was man's thoughts. Read the inspired parts at the top because that's what matters. So read it. Know it. Um, God's spirit will recall it at the right time in the right way. Right, sure. It's it's preparation for that battle. Um, any other questions, comments, thoughts? Bo? Is for a mission, from a missions perspective, because I want to think about everybody and be all-inclusive, is this pervasive in North America and Europe only, or are we seeing it in other places as we go in, you know, from a missions perspective where we know people that live in other parts besides Europe and North America? Idolatry is pervasive everywhere. Postmodern idolatry, is it's, that's North America, Canada especially as well, and Europe. Um, Africa still is very tribal. Sub-Saharan Africa is very tribal, which the, the chief is the authority and they, they're pantheistic. And the guys are going to battle and they literally tie roots from the trees onto themselves because they believe the trees are gods and they'll help them. That's Africa. Australia would be postmodern as well. They actually in some ways have led the way on some things. Would you um, say more governments or, or societies that are secular influenced by secularism? Probably, yeah, with the exception of the secular Muslim countries. Um, is, Islam has a very strong view of authority, a wrong one, but a strong one. And so they don't, honestly, witnessing to a Muslim is witnessing to a Muslim jihadi is easier than witnessing to an American. You just go down the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied, brother? Have you ever? Well, what should God do with you? He should judge me. Okay, good. Now let's talk about mercy. Let me talk about Jesus Christ. Like they, they get it. They know. So um, it tends to be just the secular societies from everything that I've read and seen. Uh, but again, postmodernism is a new label on a really old idea. Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they wanted to be like right. God. It's man setting himself up as God in his own heart. And right. it may be a unique label and a unique time in Western and American, North right. American culture, but this is a, it's a universal sin. Right. That, the na that nature of the idolatry, that's everywhere. More questions. Okay. I'll, I'll say this. Um, for those of you who are at church yesterday at our church, I preached somewhat on this, but I left this out of my sermon because I wanted to kind of bring it up here is that um, postmodernism is really a, uh, I mean, you, you really kind of expounded on it, is a diabolical system. It's, it is a manifestation of Satan mm -hmm. because it creates um, not only the spiritual imperatives that he wants, but a political climate to do it. And uh, it's, it's, Freaky. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's really freaky. So I'm going to touch more on that on law tomorrow. But yeah, I'm going to touch on our morality too. Yeah, <laughs> you'll hear about you'll you'll really hear about the devil involved in that. Yeah, with law it's, and morality, it's a diabolical system that, in that sense, you look at it and say, "Wow, it's genius," but uh, it's satanic. 
Okay, one final thought and we'll dismiss everybody and send them home. Um, find somebody younger than you to bring with you tomorrow night. Because I look around at the pews here and I mostly see people who grew up in an age and time that modernism was normal. And there was such a thing as objective reality and truth. And the education system taught you how to um, reason and think and study and learn and not just that whatever color you want to call that thing is okay because you don't know better yet. And your kids and grandkids and their friends didn't. And they need to hear this stuff. So find you one younger person and drag them with you tomorrow night. Um, with that, um, I believe that we can be closed. So uh, let's close in prayer. Seth, will you? Sure. And um, we'll be done. You bet. Lord, I just I want to thank you personally for the edification that I received from Ryan's teaching, Lord. It's just uh, caused me to thank you for not just the authority you have, but that you're a good authority. Father, that you're not malicious, that you care for us. That even your, your authority to discipline us is, is out of the love you have for us. And so that, uh, as Ryan was just saying about the sufficiency of the Scriptures, that we know those, those truths by experience, Lord. That you, uh, you have dealt with us not how our sins have deserved. Though legally you could have, you decided to legally deal with our sins as they deserved on your Son. And so that all authority that you had, you exercised in judgment, in wrath, in punishment. But Father, He paid the price and, and satisfied those legal demands so that what we receive is mercy. So Father, we, uh, I just thank You for that. It was, it was refreshing for me. I, I'm thankful that You are a, a loving, merciful God. But You're just, You're righteous, and Father, I also want to thank you uh, and, and pray, as Ryan brought up, as Joseph just brought up, that, uh, that you cause us to, to look upon this society, this generation, that's they this is how they think, uh, and cause compassion to be in our hearts. I preached on that yesterday. You showed that uh, in your word all week. Father, how you didn't just sit from on high in heaven and look at how screwed up we were and rightly diagnose our problems, but you came to us as a solution. You're merciful. And so cause us to be compassionate in the same way, not compromising, but Father, empathetic, looking upon these people as sheep without a shepherd, and that you've entrusted to the church your word, and that's sufficient for them. And you will, through your word, draw those you're calling to salvation, Father. We can trust that. You will call many out. So help us to temper our dogmatism with empathy 
and, uh, and hold our truth humbly with conviction. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you for those who are able to come. And Father, equip us, equip us to go out in our churches, in our places of work, in our households, and apply these truths, live them out, walk in them. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.